the courtroom clears. He kind of stands up. The marshals are on each side of him. And an agent from across the courtroom yells over, hey, Fitz. The judge is gone, so you can talk in a courtroom at this point. And uh, all of a sudden, I'm, I'm, I'm behind Kaczynski on an angle, maybe about 20 feet, like in the second row. And the first row kind of is cleared out already. My fellow agents, uh, you know, about 20 feet to Kaczynski's right behind him. First, Kaczynski's head goes right. Look who's who yelled that and where that guy is looking. And he can tell by the other agent's gaze uh, in the direction he's looking. He then looks over at me and I go like this to the agent, like, yeah, I'll meet you outside in a minute. And Kaczynski then, our eyes then meet, and he gives me the longest, strangest, quite frankly, borderline scariest eye-to-eye stare-down I've ever experienced. Welcome back to Code Red, everybody. I'm Ray, and as always, uh, here with Fitz. Uh, this is a special episode of Cold Red. Um, Fitz and I were talking earlier today, and today is June 10th, uh, 2023. And we became aware earlier today that Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, was found unresponsive in a cell. And uh, so we thought we'd come on and give some closing remarks about Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, and some of the uh, some of the ups and downs that occurred during the investigation and and how Fitz actually closed this out. Fitz, if you can, can you take us back to when you first got involved in this? And I, I don't know we need to go in detail. You talked about this before, but I think in this, it, it kind of, mm-hmm. I'd like to know where the starting point is. And I know this started in 1975 with some of the bombings, but when you really got involved in this, uh, Fitz, what what was that? What was that like? What was that about? Ray, I'm going to answer all these questions, and uh, we've already mentioned the Unabomber's name, but I'm going to start my uh, little bit here with three names first. They are Hugh Scrutton, they are Thomas Moser, and they are Gilbert Murray. They are the three people murdered by the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. So while um, Ted died today in prison, peacefully in his sleep. I guess everyone ideally in their 80s would want to you know, go that way, if not beyond. Uh, these three people were blown up, at least one of them in front of his wife and young daughter, who could have also been killed, but luckily weren't. So uh, there's nothing anyone hears today from me is going to be any kind of sympathetic or, or sad because of his death. Um, he's, he's where he should be. Uh, but we'll get back to some of that stuff down the line here. And actually, June 10th is a pivotal moment in this investigation. But I'll come back to that as we go on a little bit uh, uh, farther here. Yeah, basically, uh, FBI come in 1987, first office, New York, seven years, uh, promoted to supervisory special agent in 95, to Quantico as a profiler uh, in the profiling unit, later called the behavioral analysis unit. Uh, 12 weeks of training with John Douglas, uh, just as he's getting ready to retire. He gives a two-hour block on the Unabomb case, uh, which was unsolved then. And uh, this is June or so of 95, one of the last classes I took before we finished this little mini academy on how to be a profiler. And little did I know after this block, and I talked to Douglas a little bit afterwards about some of the things he wrote and this manifesto coming out, which no one had seen yet. 
And uh, little did I know that the torch was being passed to me, figuratively speaking, uh, by John Douglas uh, at that point. Uh, I go away for a, a week or two on vacation, get a phone call. Hey, Jim, how about heading out to San Francisco for 30 days? There's a Unabomb task force out there now. The New York Times is about to get this manifesto, which the Unabomber sent to them. If you publish this, I'll stop killing, uh, or, you know, bombing people to kill them. And um, they send me out for 30 days. They like the work I'm doing. And we discussed some of this on earlier podcasts and uh, certainly in my book, A Journey to the Center of the Mind, Manhunt Unabomber. There's all kinds of ways of referencing this. And then um, nine months later, we had the Unabomber in custody. Of course, his brother David, his brother David Kaczynski played a role, but we still had to build the case after we got a phone call adding Ted Kaczynski to the list of 2,500 suspects we had at the time. So it was a question of putting everything together there and um, and uh, and looking basically at the language in the in the uh, in the writings of the Unabomber, finally having a viable suspect. This one, Ted Kaczynski, the brother and the mother saved all his documents he wrote over the year, sent it to the task force. I started comparing them and we had a lot of good clues. But the final one came in. You can't eat your cake and have it, too. That was paragraph 185 of the manifesto, a, a distinctive transposition of the verbs in that axiom. And then we finally found that in the letter to the editor he wrote to Saturday Evening Magazine in the early 1970s. Uh, that was one of the letters that the mother saved, turned it over to us, and that was our linguistic smoking gun. The arrest was made April 3rd of 96, and he's been in custody from that very day until today, except he's not walking out uh, on his own, he's being carried out in a coffin or casket of some sort, and um, he'll be in the ground uh, where he where he belongs very shortly. Jim, there was a there was quite a few um, agents over the years that uh, that worked this, and you happened to come in at the end and kind of put the final pieces of the puzzle together with this thing, but. Uh, how is what is that like coming in? Because I, I that kind of happened with me on a couple different cases where someone's carried that torch for a long time, and then you come in and you wind up uh, taking it home, as you, as you might say. Uh, but there was a lot of a lot of agents, a uh, slew of agents that uh, had the opportunity to work that and just were never able to kind of close it out until you um, were able to to see inside something that was written that nobody had nobody had even thought of before. It was kind of new. It was a whole new science to the Bureau. If, if, if you really, I mean, to be honest, you kind of brought that to the FBI. I mean, there was statement analysis, but not to the level that you took it to, Jim. Well, I, uh, it, it was weird. We're all a family in the FBI, but Ray, as, you, as well as you know, you may know your, your squad in Philly pretty well and a few of the folks around you in different squads, but you get sent to a different division and, and especially one 3,000 miles away where you know no one. Yeah, we all carried a little gold badge. We're all armed. We, you know, powers of arrest. We went through Quantico, but uh, we're still feeling each other out early on. And uh, I wore this shirt uh, a few months ago on one of our podcasts, but I want to hold up again. I'm not wearing it today, but it was a team effort. I did not do this on my own. I never pretended to. Even in the miniseries Manhunt Unabomber, I made sure that, you know, the writers put in that other folks were involved. But we came, we analyzed, we arrested. Um, and uh, there's the 
Golden Gate Bridge and the mountains where the cabin was located, whatever, uh, for the Unabomb Task Force. So it was a team effort, but uh, my bosses, um, uh, you know, kind of saw something in me. I'd found some clues in the writings in the manifesto and some other letters that no one had seen before. And they said, hey, Fitz, uh, I know you're new out here. I know you're a new profiler, but you're a seasoned investigator. You were a police officer 11 years before. We think you're a good fit. Uh, a lot of the folks on the Unabomb Task Force had uh, counterintelligence backgrounds, which is good. It's an important position in the Bureau. But this was a criminal case. And they liked someone such as me who had seven years of criminal work in New York City, uh, bank robberies, extortions, all kinds of things like that but also even as a police officer. And I could talk to cops on the street, some of the ones who were the first ones at the crime scenes of the Unabomber. So I, I think I was a good fit that regard. And as I've said in other venues, I've always been an avid reader. I was not a linguist when I came on board the task force. I am now after my, my second master's that I attained at Georgetown in 2005, but I was not, but I was an aficionado, aficionado I better be able to say that word right if I am an aficionado of language, of linguistics. And I used to always do a lot of reading, crossword puzzles, Scrabble, things like that. Uh, and, uh, I, uh, and I just had a way with words. And it kind of came to me naturally. And I could read something one day and remember where I saw it, you know, a week or sometimes even a year later. So I, it was just, you know, people talk about luck, but I really believe luck is, you know, uh, uh, opportunity and preparation that comes together at that same time. And um, they gave me the opportunity. The prepping was all my life of being an avid reader. I'm not a good math guy, um, but uh, when it comes to English language, I, I, I just have kind of a photographic memory of things I've seen and things I've uh, I've read over the years. And, uh, and that all came into play in the Unibom case. You know, I must say, Jim, you do have a way with words, but we'll save that for another time. Uh, who are our listeners here? But you really do have a way with words, Jeff. Well, let me have a let me have a drink of water here. If anyone who knows this case, that uh, that word comes into play here, and how I just pronounced water. it, as opposed to water. Water. You're a water guy, Ray, because we're I'm both a water guy. Yeah, I am a water guy. That's I say water now a little more than I yeah. say water. But that See, was a clue in the Unabomb case. If you read my book or watched yes, the miniseries, yes, yes, I did. Well, here's a question for you. I, 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 and you know, you and I have, have known so each other for so long, but what was it like the first time did you, that you came face to face with this guy? What was it like? What was, what, I mean, people would love to know what was your first impression? I mean, you, you know, this guy behind the scenes and everything you're reading and, and you're looking at in the investigation, and then you come face to face with him. And what's, what's the first thing that goes through your mind, Jim? Well, um, first of all, it was a weird um, and uh, an odd relationship. And we've been there, Ray, you with various cases and me with other cases. But you have a, uh, a criminal. You have a bank robber, a, a violent offender, Center City Rapist. We, we've you know, referenced that case a few times. And, and uh, Arthur Bomar, the serial killer out in uh, uh, suburban Philadelphia. And... You, you feel you know that person even before he's identified. And you feel you know something about him, not name and address, of course, that would be ideal, but you feel you know something about this person. Well, that's how it was with me and the Unabomber. That's the only name I knew him by when I first got put on the task force. And of course, I've been reading articles about this guy since 1978, the first bombing. And, um, 
And I'm trying to get in my head, uh, you know, through the early years, then my profiling training, listen to John Douglas and how his profiles evolved from the early 80s to the mid 90s. And then I got involved. We had the benefit of the manifesto and we could enhance the profile from there. And we really started tightening it to get this guy, get the age closer to what he was, get his educational level level closer to what it was. And uh, and I really felt that I was getting comfortable knowing this man. Um, I've always been a, a reader of Sherlock Holmes and, um, and and some of his arch enemies that he would go up against. Uh, you know, sometimes they had odd names, whatever. But uh, it wasn't until uh, that once Kaczynski was identified in February of 96, and we learned that he was a former professor at Berkeley, right away, Professor, uh, the character from Sherlock Holmes, Professor Moriarty came to mind, right. who was his sort of arch nemesis through uh, at least a few, one short story and, and one novel, I think. And and I kind of saw uh, Kaczynski as my personal professor, Mario, uh, Moriarty. I mean, uh, you know, the, the storyline was different and Moriarty de dealt more in the public and he had other relationships, unlike Kaczynski locked in his cabin in the middle of nowhere all these years, but still a professor, still very brilliant. And uh, luckily we had no Rickenbach Falls situation where it looks like both parties fall off the cliff and die. But of course, only Moriarty died, and that was his end. So, in a way, uh, Kaczynski fell off his Rickenbach Falls today, and uh, and he is uh, he is he is no longer with us. But uh, but yeah, I fell through the manifesto. It's 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 rare, Ray, to um, as you would know, to have a manifesto of someone. We're, we talk about the Nashville case, and we'd love to read that, both as investigators, as profilers, as linguists, but also how to prevent the next person who may have similar ideology from committing those crimes. Well, here we didn't have a person in Unabom identified yet, but uh, we had his manifesto and we could read through it. And I read through it with a fine tooth linguistic comb. And uh, with the only case I was working that time, that's a rare luxury. As you know, in the FBI, even the biggest of cases, you still have to put out little fires with other ones you're working and dealing with the courts and assistant U.S. attorneys and things like that. But pretty much once I was on Unibom, that was the only thing I was doing. I was very focused. And I said, man, it's been 17 years. Can I possibly make a difference in this? And some of my bosses out there thought I could. They gave me some leeway, some autonomy. Let me put a team together. And we really focused on the language in that case because it was a treasure trove of language. No one ever had a case like this before where you had a criminal that insisted on writing as much as he did to, uh, to the media, to some of his victims, of course. And, uh, and, uh, and even do others in the mix there. And we had 14 different letters. The manifesto itself was 35,000 words, 56 typewritten pages. So a lot of evidence there. And, and language is a, certainly a window to the soul, to the heart, to the mind of an individual. You know, someone can say F you. That tells you something about the person. But if you get that same expression over 56 pages, you can get a lot more of that person besides just the very basic uh, invective there. So, um, and that's the advantage we had. And we could really tighten that profile together. And we knew based on everything we read and the team I was supervising, when the right person was identified, we could finally say, aha, that is our guy. And once the name Kaczynski came up, and again, he wasn't the first suspect, not by any stretch, or the only suspect in uh, early 96, 
But once his name came up and I was given some other paperwork to look at that he wrote um, back in the early 70s, uh, another um, treatise he wrote only for his brother's eyes, but the brother turned it over to the FBI. I said, uh, "This, you've got your man. And that's when they brought me back out to UTF. And um, the next eight weeks, we uh, focused really hard and uh, actually six weeks make that. And we finally made the arrest uh, on April 3rd of, of 96. Jim, uh, I know you were traveling today um, and you haven't heard this, but I heard in the news and I'll have all the details that earlier today or maybe late yesterday, the family of the offender in the Nashville shooting has released a manifesto not to law enforcement, but to the families of, of the victims so that they know what's going on. I don't, I do, hmm. it's kind of sketchy what I have in reference to that, but that's something that maybe we can talk about next time. Sure. As we're, we're dedicated to this, but I, I just, just so with a point of clarification, when you brought that up, here's the second thing. And here's a question that I wanted to ask you. And I know this because I've been through it and I know you've been through it. But I, when I'm looking at someone and I'm chasing something, I have a set expectations based upon what I've learned about the person. Although I don't know who the person is, but I've learned about the person through either documents, through informants, through all different types of means. But then I come in and I meet the person and my expectations of who this person is versus what I'm coming face to face with. Did you get that feeling that when you saw him, you went, I didn't expect this. I expected something different. And I, I mean, compared to what you're talking about, a professor and then finding a guy in a log cabin. Yeah. And that was your question of a few minutes ago, which I didn't specifically answer. And uh, yeah, I, I hate to disappoint some people sometimes that have watched Manhunt Unabomber, a very, very well-made series, well-written. I always say it's about 85% accurate. Um, there was no Jim Fitzgerald, Ted Kaczynski interaction at all. Kaczynski did not interact with any FBI agent uh, until, you know, once he was transported for his arraignment that day. And uh, and he barely answered any questions, even when, uh, you know, he first had handcuffs slapped on him. So uh, my only interaction with him was in the courtroom in January of 1998 in Sacramento, California. That's where the, the jurisdiction was for the Unabomber's uh, trial, if it ever had taken place. But he ultimately decided to plead guilty through his attorneys. And uh, and um, my interaction was there. I was in the room when Thomas Moser's widow, Susan Moser, stood up and gave her her sort of victim statement and uh, and basically wished Kaczynski to go into the deepest fires of hell, which I would say is where he is right now. Uh, so she got her wish there, even though it took some 27 years later. But uh, when the, everything was over, the, the judge hit the gavel, uh, you know, court dismissed. You know, you're off to prison for the rest of your life, Mr. Kaczynski. Two consecutive terms, uh, life imprisonment. Uh, the courtroom clears. He kind of stands up. The marshals are on each side of him. And an agent from across the courtroom yells over, hey, Fitz. The judge is gone, so you can talk in a courtroom at this point. And uh, all of a sudden, I'm, I'm, I'm behind Kaczynski on an angle, maybe about 20 feet, like in the second row. And the first row kind of is cleared out already. My fellow agents, are, you know, about 20 feet to Kaczynski's right behind him. 
First, Kaczynski's head goes right. Look who's who yelled that and where that guy is looking. And he can tell by the other agent's gaze uh, in the direction he's looking. He then looks over at me and I go like this to the agent, like, yeah, I'll meet you outside in a minute. And Kaczynski then, our eyes then meet. And he gives me the longest, strangest, quite frankly, borderline scariest eye-to-eye stare down I've ever experienced. Um, I wasn't afraid physically of this guy. He wasn't a big man. You know, that doesn't even matter. But he had no weapons, of course. He was getting handcuffs again by the marshals. But it's just like there's a guy staring at me. He knows my name from the affidavit. A lot of the court documents, they were arguing back and forth. Fitzgerald's uh, affidavit and the you know part of the Turchi affidavit, whatever, in which my fifty pages of the of the language of the Unabomber compared to Kaczynski were used to get the search warrant for his cabin. So he knew all about Fitz or Fitzgerald, and he looked at me. And as I I've said before, if somehow he could have constructed a mental IED improvised explosive device in his brain and sent it in my direction. Uh, he would have gladly done so and blown me up right there on the spot. He did not like me. He did not want any parts of me. Uh, I have no doubt uh, whether he's capable of hate or not. I don't know. But uh, he definitely uh, he definitely would have liked to see me harm right then. And I could see that in these eyes. People describe Charles Manson's eyes or his stare as very as breaching the soul of the individuals who may have experienced it. I'm not sure what Manson would have done to me in that regard. But Kaczynski, for about the 30 seconds, he maintained that stare until the marshals kind of grabbed them by the arm and marched them out of the room. Uh, he had my attention, and I knew if he ever had a chance to get a bomb made somehow, somewhere in, uh, in uh, either the Supermax where he was up until uh, about a year and a half ago or in the uh, uh, medical center, uh, federal medical center, Butner in North Carolina, he would have done it and he would have sent it to me. So uh, uh, so that's my one interaction with him. Never spoke with him, never talked to him. Um, I did try to set up an interview with him in 2007. Uh, put that in my book. That kind of fell apart. When we were doing the miniseries, the director and the head writer said, hey, reach out to Ted and maybe we can have, you know, Sam Worthington, the final scene. We'll be sitting with the Unabomber. And, and this is like the 20 year later interview, something like that. And um but uh, Kaczynski never responded to that letter. Uh, so uh, my chance of ever interviewing Kaczynski, a behavioral interview to find out what made him tick, uh, why he killed the people he did, why he felt he had to do it, um, we'll never know. Here's here's a couple things. And, and just for our listeners, you need to think about this. Um, for someone to stare at you for 30 seconds, think about... Stare at something for 30 seconds and time yourself and then look away. Imagine someone staring at you for that amount of time. And when you talk about Charles Manson and you talk about Arthur Bomar, look at tapes of Charles Manson and look at his eyes. They're black. There's there's no life in it. And when you look at that and you know that's pure evil. But I must have I shouldn't say I must. I have to wonder, Jim, that when he hears Fitz, now he's read that affidavit five times. Many, many, probably 50 times. At least that. 
So he's trying to figure out and he's trying to put a name. How did I get here? Who put me here? And one of the, one of the reasons why he was there was because of you. So when he hears that fits, is he more inquisitive to who are you first? And then when he finds out who you are, then comes the death stare, you know? Um, yeah, because he was so careful with fingerprints and even the early days of DNA analysis and other types of indented writing. None of that was present in his uh, in his uh, missives to the New York Times. Nothing on the bombing devices themselves. What got him caught is uh, his own language. Of course, his brother played a role in that, too. But we still had to build the case after his brother called us and said, oh, my brother, maybe the Unabomber, maybe not. Here's some documents. OK, we had to build the case from there. So uh, but he knew it was his own language. And people have asked me to this day, I think they asked me two questions. If the brother didn't turn him in, would you ever have caught him? Yes. I was already proposing a, um, a, a long term project that I would have gladly supervised back then of going out to every newspaper and magazine in the country. This is a lot of kind of before the Internet was even uh, up and running too much mid 90s uh, and going to some of their archives and the old uh, you know, in their files with the micro fitch and microfilm and looking for letters. And we have like about a dozen categories, uh, you know, uh, anti-capitalism and anti-big business, all those types of things. Um, and a lot of the themes that were found in the manifesto. I think we would have um, eventually found Theodore J. Kaczynski, uh, you know, Lombard, Illinois, as the author, because he signed all these things with his real name, because he wrote, you know, a dozen or more letters to different newspapers and magazines in the, from the 70s on. So I think we would have identified a guy named Ted Kaczynski, would have been a number of other suspects out there, but we would have at least followed through on him, inter, you know, found out where he's living, his background, and I hopefully we'd be able to put the case together at that point. The other question, though, is if he never wrote anything, if he only um, made the bombs and sent them out, which are really his first uh, um kind of the first iteration of his bombings, the first uh, 12, I believe, uh, there were only two ruse letters. And they're pretty, pretty short. We'll come back to that in a minute. But um, um, but uh, if he didn't write his uh, manifesto and other letters to victims that were much longer, um, uh, then we may never have solved this case. So again, it was his own language that brought him down. And before I get sidetracked with your good questions, Ray, Interestingly, the first Unabomb document was this fourth bombing um, sent to, um, actually, this was a third bombing, sorry. It was sent to the president of United Airlines, Percy Wood, and in 1980, and that became the, the cornerstone, the very first document, uh, we called it U1 for Unabomb 1, it was a ruse letter to trick Percy Wood into opening up a book that had been hollowed out with a device put inside, a bombing device, a plunger with a spring hook to it. Once the cover opened up, it blew up in his face, didn't kill him, but severely injured him and disfigured him. Guess what the date was of that first letter that he ever wrote? June 10th. June 10th, 1980. When does Ted Kaczynski die? June 10th, 2023. So the, the element of language, the aspect of language, which is what eventually brought him down and led to the loss of his 
uh, physical freedom um, was dated the same day as he lost his physical life, if you will. So coincidence, most likely yes, but nonetheless, uh, there are significant moments in life of karma and, uh, and issues such as that that sometimes come together for a reason. So June 10th plays a, a significant role in his life. The first letter he ever wrote as a serial bomber, which eventually was used to identify him, and he dies on the same on the anniversary of that date, um, forty-three years later. Did anybody ever have the opportunity to speak with uh, the Unabomber while he was incarcerated? Was there anybody on any level? I know you said you never had the opportunity to interact with them, other than that one time in court. But was there anybody at any time that you're aware of that had the opportunity to interact with him? Well, a lot of people became his pen pal. I know that's an old fashioned term, but you can't do emails from prison. He had many people writing him from all over the world. And I'm, I forget the exact time frame or timeline of this, but one of them was a woman who claimed to be a journalist for someone. I think she was more of a blogger back early 2000s. A few letters here and there back and forth. He finally permitted her to visit. I think she was relatively young, like in her early 30s. He's at this point in his uh, 60s. And um, she visits him once in the Supermax, twice. I think she even maybe moved it to Colorado for a while. And this is a remote part of Colorado, Florence. And basically, they fall in love. And they get engaged to be married. And let me remind everyone here, Supermax, you can get visitors if you, you know your good behavior and all that kind of stuff. But there is no conjugal visits, anything like that. In fact, there's no touching at all. You've seen movies and, and TV where they're sitting in a large room and they can hold hands and the little kids next to them, whatever. But no, this is your inch thick plexiglass window in between you and your guest. You're on the phone on one side, he or she's on the phone or the other, and, uh, and that's how they talk. The best they can do is hold their fingers up to each other while not actually talking. So he fell in love with that woman. They were going to get married and she was diagnosed with cancer. It's a sad story. And uh, I think it came to the point she couldn't visit anymore. She became so sick. He went on a writing craze to different doctors, medical centers. I don't think she had insurance. He was trying to get um, collect money for her, um, and, you know, set up a fund for her, whatever. But it was all for naught in the long run, and she and she died. And the one the one thing. Um, that's, that escaped him his whole life was a successful relation, his whole life uh, as a free man, so to speak, his, uh, was that of a successful relationship with a woman. He, he wrote, I read his diary. He never had sex with a woman. He was a straight guy. He had some sexual confusion for a while when he was at University of Michigan. Uh, he wanted to transition to a woman. He actually met with a uh, university psychologist. He's out there working on his PhD then. And uh, the psychologist listened to him, and this is all in Ted's diary. I read it. And uh, yes, you want to be a woman? Okay. We th you think you'd be happier? Okay. Well, here's the deal. We do a therapy session for, for several years. Then we put you on medications for several years. And then if everything is still proceeding at that point, we'll consider doing the surgery. And this is like 1966. So this is way before the transition surgeries we hear about today. Um, but he got so upset that he had to wait 
you know, four to five years for any kind of a surgery to take place. He said to himself, the hell with it, I'm out of here. And as he's walking out the door, he wrote years later in his diary, he decided that psychiatrist is the kind of person he wants to kill. And damn it, someday he will kill that kind of person. It took him about 15, no, from there it was about 20 years to start his bombings in 1978. But sure enough, he did. I don't think he ever had a psychiatrist as a target, but uh, he, he picked up other representational targets after that. And uh, and uh, and he killed them and he severely injured them, almost brought a jetliner down. He didn't even know who those people were. And that would have been 220 people he killed. It did blow up. It did do damage to the aircraft. But because the pilots were trained to handle an emergency landing, they, they successfully uh, made it on the ground and with only a, a dozen or so minor injuries. So, um, yeah, that's that's the legacy of this guy. Uh, interesting, Robert Hansen died this week in yeah. in the Supermax. They were in the same uh, institution for decades together. Uh, well, at least two decades, I guess. Hansen was only arrested in the early 2000s. But, um, uh, but it was solitary confinement there. If they ever saw each other, it was a nod of the head and... Um, they didn't, eat, they didn't eat their meals together. They didn't work out together. Everyone was in isolation, and um, uh, but they were coincidentally in the same institution at the same time. Jim, you know we you, you talk about the victims here, and and the victims we should never forget about the victims. Those that's the real tragedy here. Um, but I, a lot of people would like to know if you know uh, based upon your involvement in this case and the reading of the diary and the reading of the manifesto, how did he choose his victims? Were they specifically selected or were they just random? Well, in his early days, he would place bombs uh, on occasion and just wait at, at an institution of which he um, disapproved. And these were usually uh, universities. And so a few of his early victims were just sent or just put on tables in a, you know, inside a, of a hall at the end of a, a classroom uh, facility. And a few people picked them up. One guy, uh, last name Hauser, forget his first name, but uh, he was also at Berkeley. He was on the, uh, to be, he was ready to be an astronaut. He was in the Air Force. He was going to be an astronaut on the space shuttle. And uh, he just picked up this device. What, what is this? It blew up. It blew his hand so far up. Uh, blew his hand apart uh, so viciously that his Air Force Academy ring, um, the finger itself blew up against the sheetrock wall. And you can see the in, the impression in the sheetrock wall of, of his ring. I'm not sure you can even punch a sheetrock wall and, and leave an impression with your ring, yeah. but it, but the force of the explosion so fierce. So, um, so that was a representational target for him, not by name. Other people like Percy Wood, president of United Airlines, uh, Thomas Moser, who headed up a uh, uh, sort of a PR firm that was working with Exxon after the Exxon Valdez had their oil spill in uh, off the coast of Alaska. And so he didn't go after the captain of the oil tanker. He didn't go after the CEO of Exxon. He went after the guy who was handling the account at the public relations firm trying to make Exxon look a little bit better. Uh, and you can agree or disagree whether that should happen or not. You know, the oil spill, of course, was a bad thing, but this bothered Kaczynski so much that he just had to go after that particular guy. Um, and it turns out he didn't like airlines because they were flying over his cabin twice a day. Uh, 
at 35,000 feet. He saw the contrails. He didn't know if he was being poisoned or what. And then a sawmill opened up about a mile from where he lived in the cabin. He wasn't in the middle of nowhere in his cabin. He did have a neighbor about a quarter of a mile away, and there was a sawmill that opened up a mile away or so. And he would hear the thing, the buzz saws going, you know, every morning, every afternoon, and that bothered the hell out of him. So who was his last victim then? Um, uh, it was uh, Gilbert Murray, who was a forestry lobbyist working in, uh, of all places, Sacramento. And he just felt that he had to send a bomb to that guy as a representational target. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I mentioned these in my book and, and I do kind of carry through and how these victims were chosen. So, yes, yeah, some were random. Um, um, others were uh, there's a Yale University a computer scientist. Uh, you look at someone like Kaczynski, and I, I want to end it here in, in a little bit uh, of something that I read uh, in a book he cited in the manifesto. But you look at Kaczynski, he got his Ph.D. in mathematics. And, you know, how hard must that be? Uh, you know, Harvard undergrad mathematics, University of Michigan, master Ph.D. And this is before computers were allowed to be used. And if you've seen the old movie, not that old, but A Beautiful Mind, you know, the brilliant professors writing on the windows all the long math formulae and remember uh the day the earth stood still there's the you know the mathematician writing there and then the the space guy comes in and figures it out for him uh so kaczynski that's how he was trained that's how he figured out his math problems and he did solve apparently one or two math problems that no one else could could decipher he did it and he published his papers in that regard he was brilliant and by the time he graduates, he's teaching in the late 60s, what's happening in another sphere of academia? Computers are coming about. They're the size of a room at first, but slowly as he's, you know, as he's progressing in, in if you will, uh, you know, at the university, he really didn't progress. But as he's moving along in uh, Berkeley, computers are getting smaller. They're getting more. Every university now has one. You can get time and sit there. And what used to take Kaczynski, you know, weeks or days or hours, whatever, to figure out a problem. Now you punch these numbers into a computer, you have it in minutes back then, and then seconds, you know, a few years later. And how much that have bothered him? Again, modern technology. He was a Luddite, or at least subscribed to that anti-technology uh, logic. So, um, so uh, how frustrating that must have been. That's why he went after computer people toward the end when he started bombing again after a six-year hiatus uh, resuming in 1993 a few of his targets were computer specialists and uh and uh including david galertner at, uh, at yale university who had again half of his hand uh blown off and uh so uh that's how the targets were selected they were not random at all he got their information from the who's who book that every library used to have remember as a kid We'd go in and ask the librarian, what's the biggest book in the library? Well, it's right there, Sonny, but you can't check it out. And it was always a book about a, a foot thick and about, you know, 18 inches wide, never meant to be carried or, or moved. And you would just go through it. And it's who's who, like everyone's kind of famous, semi-famous, you know, in their in their respective fields in the U.S. And uh, and that's how he found their addresses, either work or uh, or home addresses. And that's where he'd send these things to his targets. You know, it sounds like, uh, you know, you always you always look for a motive. Uh, what's the motive here? And, you know, based upon what you just said, I would have to say his motive was revenge. Revenge for people that he thought did him wrong, whether it was 
whether it was real or not, it's what he perceived it to be. Which, and, and I know that um, they said he was kind of sane, but he did suffer from some mental illness. I think paranoid schizophrenia was, was uh, he was diagnosed with one that, uh, with the psychologist that spoke with him. But you think revenge might have been a big part here, Jim? Revenge, yes, but the motive was more complex than that. Um, and I've mentioned here before in Cold Red, and I, I'm pretty sure I was the first one to ever sort of codify this with the Unabomber. I didn't make up the word incel. That's someone did in the late 90s, involuntary celibacy. But having read everything Kaczynski ever wrote, his frustration at not having been successful in relationships with a woman, dating or anything, uh, certainly not having intimate relations, he was one of the early incels. And I think he was so frustrated, so uh, so torn apart inside with this lack of any sort of uh, you know interpersonal relationship with a woman that it, it just drove him crazy. It just drove him uh, um, to, 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 to places where most people wouldn't go. Yet he was a victim of his own solitude, of his own uh, mental inability to, in fact, relate. And he hated his parents when he got older. And he, I read some of the things he wrote to his parents about, that, you know, oh, great, I'm a supposed genius. You sent me off to Harvard at 16 years of age. But uh, look what you did to my personality. I, I can't, you know, I can't talk to men. I can't talk to women. Uh, you've ruined me. You, you know, and, and he just, I, you know, when his father committed, I think his father read enough of these letters. His father committed suicide. And, um, and Ted called up his mother. Yeah, well, whatever. He's gone. Is there any insurance money you can give me? I have a project I'm working on. And that was, you know, building his bombs and going to uh, taking buses to San Francisco to, uh, to drop them off. But you know what? I'm, I'm going to read a little section here from my Kindle. I just happened to read in the last few days, and it's from a book. There's only four books cited in the Unabomber's Manifesto. Ancient Engineers is a novel by L. Sprague de Camp. I read that back in the day about uh, how the pyramids were really built and, you know, whether they're aliens or early civilization. There's a few sort of uh, the two other were, uh, you know, crime in America, uh, the two other references to articles or books. Uh, crime in America, and then uh, and, and something related to that. You know, we took a lot of clues out of those over the years. But the other book was uh, nonfiction, and it was the, uh, called The True Believer by Eric Hoffer, written in the 1950s. And Eric Hoffer was a brilliant person, and I always use him as an example when I'm doing, I'm looking at anonymous threatening communications. And when I teach my uh, classes at Penn West University, or you know, over the years to law enforcement, to FBI, I say, be careful when rendering an opinion on a educational level, because you may think someone writes really nice, and, and they may, writes really well, big words, you know, uh, great vocabulary, punctuates everything perfectly, uh, and you just assume they have a master's degree or even a PhD. Well, I've learned over the years that a lot of PhD people can't write very well, and I've also learned a lot of high school dropouts can write very well. And Eric Hoffer was one of those. He was a high school uh, dropout, yet he wrote one of the seminal books books on uh, mass movements and cults and um, and, and and these types of uh, uh, groups and, and religious fanaticism 
that people would belong to. And he actually wrote one section in chapter 41 that even before Kaczynski died, I'm reading the same way. This kind of describes Ted Kaczynski very well. And uh, and remember, this is a book Kaczynski cited in the manifesto, writing as the Unabomber, of course. So just going to read a couple paragraphs here, and you'll see what I'm going after. And the chapter heading is The Board, B-O-R-E-D. So quoting from Eric Hoffer, quote, there is perhaps no more reliable indicator of a society's rightness for a mass movement than the prevalence of unrelieved boredom. And let me just interrupt here. And Kaczynski in his manifesto, he wanted a mass movement. We should get rid of all of society's trappings and start living in tribes, living in an agrarian society, tribes of no more than 30 people. So this was the Unabomber's mass movement, picking up again. In almost all the descriptions of the periods preceding the rise of mass movements, there is reference to this. And in their earliest stages, mass movements are more likely to find sympathizers and support among the bored than among the exploited and oppressed. When people are bored, it is primarily with their own selves that they are bored. The consciousness of a barren, meaningless existence is the main fountainhead of boredom. People who are not conscious of their individual separateness, as in the case of those who are members of a compact tribe, that's him, the Unabomber, church, party, etc., are not accessible to boredom. The differentiated individual is free of boredom only when he's engaged either in creative work or some absorbing occupation, or when he is wholly engrossed, engrossed in the struggle for existence. When people, where people live autonomous lives and are not badly off, Yet there, without abilities or opportunities for creative work or useful action, there is no telling to what desperate and fantastic shifts they may resort in order to give meaning and purpose to their lives. So this guy was living in a cabin, bored as shit, and decided he had to kill people. So that's what all that means. It comes down to one aspect of Eric Hoffer describing these types of leaders these cult leaders, these these mass movements. You can apply some of this over the years to some things we're going through now, even going back to COVID, some people saying things back then and who hated others as much for not getting vaxxed or for being too vaxxed or whatever. And I really think between, between Kaczynski's boredom in his cabin, because that's when the bombing started, not before then. He did move back to Chicago with his, uh, with his family when the first bombings started. He was making his bombs in the attic. But then throw in the incel category, even living in Chicago, he tried to date one woman he used to uh, work at his brother's company with, and, uh, and that went nowhere, and that's when the bombing started. So uh, not every bored purpose person, of course, is going to be a serial killer. We know that. But mix in the other complexities of a Professor Moriarty light or like, in, in someone like the Unabomber, uh, you're going to uh, you're going to have a, a strong possibility of of the brain just getting so rattled and so addled with these, these these negative thoughts that bad things may happen. It could be a mass shooting, it could be a serial rapist, it could be a serial bomber, like we had with for the first time in public saying this: the late Unabomber, the late Ted Kaczynski. You know, Jim, um, as we look at this, 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 uh, the Unabomb case was probably 
one of the highlights of your career. And as such, and now the death of the Unabomber today on June 10th, what does that mean to you? If it means anything. Um, the Unibomb case had a profound effect on my life personally and professionally. Uh, I was away from my home and my family, uh, three separate trips, um, you know, three to four months at a time, some trips back and forth. And my kids were always number one to me. I was on the phone every day and every time home I would visit them, but it wasn't quite the same. And it led to some estrangement and eventually a divorce in my life. Very difficult. With my kids today, it was great seeing them on a, on a family function, and I'll see them next weekend. So uh, everyone is good in that in that area. But the Unibom case certainly played at least somewhat of a role uh, in that particular personal aspects of my life. But professionally, uh, it certainly did too. And that is with uh, me understanding for the first time the value of language and how it can be used in committing crimes and how it can be assessed, analyzed, and then determining how uh, to use that same language uh, in those assessments and uh, ascribe it to a particular person, match it up with his or her writing style, his or her speaking style, determining the threat level involved, whether you know the name, don't know the name, and, uh, and, 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 just, and just learn so much more about that person. We are the products of uh, our entire life experience and that includes our usage of language, where you went to school, where you grew up, if you moved around a lot, if you were stationary, did you go to a highbrow school, a mid-level school, somewhere beneath that? Are you a woman? Are you a man? Conceivably, are you transitioning from one to the other? All these things kick in at some point and to some degree in terms of how we use language, both spoken aspects of it and written aspects of it. And uh, a trained linguist uh, can in fact uh, learn from people's language. I certainly did in the Unibom case and uh, other linguists who came along after me and some who even were there ahead of me also realized the value of, uh, of language from a forensic linguistic perspective. And, uh, and that whole science opened up uh, uh, not too long after the Unibom case. And I was glad to be uh, not one of the first forensic linguists out there but certainly one of the first ones to use it in criminal cases uh, in terms of identifying and arresting and convicting bad guys. And also on occasion, even now in the private sector, working for defense attorneys. And if someone did not write a communication or, or some language was used, which you know uh, exculpated them from their particular uh, charges or crimes, uh, if, the, if the evidence points to it, I'm glad to uh, work in that direction too. So uh, uh, yeah, it definitely changed my life. Uh, I think the world of linguistics changed a little bit after Unibom. Uh, some court cases have been, uh, some court decisions in terms of expert testimony being offered was allowed after Unibom. I was the first one to ever do that in a case, U.S. versus Van Wick, uh, out of the U.S. Uh, in, the, in the federal courts in New Jersey. And, uh, and uh, we've been, uh, you know, riding high since then. Still needs more work. And uh, AI is confusing things a bit, chat. Uh, GPT is, you know, that's a use of language that some linguists are still trying to get around. I'm sure Kaczynski would not have approved of any of that at all, uh, being the hardcore uh, non-computer person that he was. Again, past tense was. And uh, but uh, but yeah, in, in closing here, we're up to about to our, our usual hour. Um, 
don't feel sorry for Ted Kaczynski. He was a bad guy. And did he have some interesting ideas in his manifesto about, you know, the evils of technology, of big business, of capitalism, of, uh, of leftism, uh, of, of many other isms out there? Uh, yes, he was the proverbial broken clock, you know, right maybe twice, twice a day. But uh, and if he had chosen some other forum to um, to to put his message out there, who knows? He could have been uh, he could have been held in high esteem to this day. And and we're looking with social media and some features like that that perhaps you know he he was right in in some cases, but uh, but not the price that we as a society had to pay. Uh, I still walk into a, a few post offices around where I live, and the and the postal uh, people know me, and uh, and they know I've, I've written books. I mail them off to people signed, and uh, and uh, and I, they just get talking. And oh yeah, I was around in ninety five, ninety six when the Unibomb rules were put into place, and that's when now every time you send a package, any you know any any bond or not bonds, but you know any liquid in it, any gasoline, any you know fluids that are dangerous, explosive devices, things like that. So all the rules change with the Unabomber uh, at the post office and how we mail things. And again, they certainly changed in my life, too. But don't feel sorry for the guy. A lot of what he wrote, even in the manifesto, was borrowed from a French philosopher named Jacques Yule, uh, uh, who wrote also about uh, the you know, technological society. That was his book. And uh, so Kaczynski, Unabomber, wasn't even that original. The only thing he did was he espoused many of the same ideas. Uh, but then because he was bored and he also was not successful with women, he decided he had to kill people to get his point across. Uh, it's never a good formula. Jim, I'm going to ask one more question. And uh, I don't know if I'll put you on the spot on this question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Um, I know you never had the opportunity to come face to face with Kaczynski. But if you did and you had the opportunity right now to tell him one thing, oh. what would it be? You want to say one thing to him, what would you say? Usually it's what the one, what is the one question I would ask the Unabomber. Well, you can, you, can, you can say one thing. It could be a question or it could be a statement, whatever, whatever you want. You are such a brilliant man, Ted, probably the most brilliant criminal that the FBI ever came across and perhaps other institutions. You are the real life Professor Moriarty. Why did you have to kill people that you never met? It's a great question. One that uh, we'll never know the answer to. But I wish that was one that he would have answered. Yeah. Well, he tried, you know, to get his point across, et cetera, et cetera, but, but not good enough. Not good yeah. enough. Yeah. Well, with that said, you have any closing remarks, Jim? No, he's literally taken the answer to that question to his grave. And, um, and again, it's no loss of society. We all learn something from it. It's a shame it was at the cost of three lives and about two dozen people seriously injured and disfigured. Yeah. Um, I, I, I always like learning lessons in life but uh, not at the sake um, uh, of other people and certainly not them being murdered or seriously hurt. So uh, uh, U.S. and I think international law enforcement is better now. We know how to look at these types of uh, these types of criminals in a slightly different light. If there is writings 
produced by them, if there are writings produced by them, let's let the experts look at them. And in most cases, uh, let's let the public look at them. Let's let the public know what's out there. First of all, to maybe identify them like we did with the Unibomb case, but also to know what makes them tick. Again, I'm repeating myself here. You know, see something, say something. That's great. Tell us what the hell to look for. Put the manifestos out there or whatever they're called, writings, diaries. You can cut out names. You can cut out bombing, uh, you know, supplies and materials, things like that. But, uh, but let us know what makes these people think, and we'll know how to identify the next potential Absolutely. Well, with that said, we want to thank everybody for joining us for a special episode of Cold Red. And until next time, and we hope you join us again, it's Fitz and Ray signing off. Thank you. See you, everyone.